Sean, hello. Hi, good morning. You're so excited to have someone from Argentina because we've had lots of other other countries. We've had South Africa, Australia, um, and even Bob the Regis, but we've never had um, uh, Argentina before. Uh, Sean, can you tell us exactly where you are, what the time of day is, and what the weather is, please? Right, so we farm on the southern edge of the Pampas, the southeast corner of the province of Buenos Aires. It's now uh, mid-spring in November, uh, nine in the morning, and... Um, all set to go. Uh, we're planting sort of summer crops at the minute. Excellent. So just for everyone on the uh, on, on the podcast, just want to give a, a, a bit of a, a description as to who Sean is. And we're also live on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter and, uh, and Facebook. But let's give a proper introduction to uh, to Sean because it's great to have his uh, his time today. So we're doing a Talking Leaders conversation with Sean Cameron, soil steward and Argentinian arable farmer. We know how important it is to be inspired by big businesses and individuals. And that's why we're excited to present this Talking Leaders series. It's a monthly initiative from the AHDB with ourselves, Beanstalk Global, hosting it. Um, and we see a series of inspirational speakers share their life experiences and deliver impactful stories to the agri-leader community. So today we're joined by Sean. Sean is educated at St. George's College in Argentina, followed by College in Edinburgh. And then he, uh, Sean uh, graduated in chemical engineering from Cambridge University. After five years working as a trader in London, he returned to the family farm in Argentina. The farm was purchased by his great-grandfather in 1916 on the south edge of the, pa help, help me, Sean, Pampas? Pampas, yes. Thank you. In the province of uh, um, Buenos Oh, I can't even say that. Sean, help me. In the province well, of... Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. As, as a sheep farm. Uh, this gradually veered towards Aberdeen Angus cattle and an ever-increasing amount of annual grain crops and potatoes. In 1993, Sean returned to manage the farm with his Canadian wife, Jennifer. It then became 100% arable annual cropping. And by 1996, all the farm was farmed in a non-till farming system. So that's, that's going to be amazing to hear about that. Presently, Sean's farm includes nine centre pivot irrigating machines, each size between 53 and 88 hectares, and a 12,000 tonne drying and storage grain facility, as well as all the machinery necessary for planting, protecting and harvesting the crops. They now own approximately 2,200 hectares and rent a further 1,600 hectares. The farm's main crops are wheat, barley, white clover seed production, sunflower, corn and seed corn and sweet corn produced under irrigation. They occasionally produce peas and plant second crop soybeans after wheat and barley harvest. Sean, was that a good description of the farm unit and your background to date, please? Yeah, that's pretty much um, put it in a nutshell. Yeah, sounds okay. it's um, it sounds if it can be described in about 30 seconds. That's right. <laughs> and, and sure, just out of curiosity, if we came and had another broadcast, or, or we're lucky enough to visit your farm in say ten years' time, what, what's tell us the plan? How, how are you going to develop the, uh, the the farm itself? Well, um, I, yeah, I've been, I, I've, been, I, I've already worked, I guess, thirty years, nearly thirty years on the farm. I've developed it from, as you've described, from what was ending ending a cattle and sheep farming operation into a fully uh, arable crop, continuous uh, agriculture, and we were lucky enough in the mid-90s to turn it all into a no-till system, which uh, for the farmers and for the soils we have and the climate we have works really, really well. I mean, we were able to sort of discard our, our plows and our discs in an 18-month period and fully turn into no-till in no time. Uh, now we are beginning to get some of the 
you know, nature fight back sort of problems in, in our no-till system, um, herbicide resistant weeds particularly. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe not 10, but 15, 20 years time, those problems will be resolved with other technology, be they robots, be they lasers, be there something that will do away with particularly herbicides in our chemical sort of system. Yeah. Um, so maybe that, that will be the main difference some years down the road. Yeah, evolution, not revolution. And then I, Isaac, I think the Talking Leaders series is great because we're going to find so much more from uh, from from Sean. But can you just give us a bit of a background to the Talking Leaders and to AHDB, please, Isaac? Yeah, thanks, Max. Uh, like you mentioned, I work for AHDB. Uh, we are a levy-funded organisation working on behalf of farmers. Um, as AHDB, we provide market analysis and market intelligence. We do farmer-to-farmer -farmer knowledge exchange. Uh, we look at consumer trends. Uh, we challenge misinformation if we find that in the media. Uh, we also run a consumer marketing campaign called We Eat Balanced, uh, which, by the way, last year reached 43 million adults. Uh, so, mm. yeah, uh, we work with schools and teachers uh, to engage with tomorrow's consumers. And actually, um, just last week, we had an agri-leader circle on exactly that topic called Cultivating Young Minds fertile food and farming education so you know so lots of puns in there but a you know a really important area uh, we also help facilitate exports and we've got a circle agri-leader circle on that so that you can go back and look at um, but like you mentioned the program that i lead on is something called agri-leader and we base our delivery around three areas leading self leading people and leading business and this talking leader series is part of that and which is why we've managed to track down sean uh, via my Nuffield uh, network and twist his arm to to be with us. So welcome, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks. God, God Isaac, you, you you take the lead. I'm very fascinated to see with your with your with your background and also also with your HDB head. How how are we going to steer this conversation and get the most out of Sean for everyone so, dialed in? So just you know, since Sean's passion there for for you know no till and and that's in working uh, um, on soil preservation techniques. So that's really sort of a big part of, of an interest. And, you know, when we, when I sent track Sean down first, you know, big part of your passion. So where did that start with Sean? How did, where did that seed first get planted? Right, I mean, the Pampas itself are, are very young soils, not only geologically young, because the Andes are, are, are one of the late, latest uh, uh, last Mountain, big mountain ridges to be formed geologically, and, and all the pampas soils were basically windblown off the off the pampas. So you get the sandier soils closer to the the Andes, sorry, and then at our end, the eastern end, you get the finer particles that flew off the Andes, and we got we got some very good Frankie loam soils, which over thousands and millions of years, with lots of um, rain in this area. We created these very rich organic matter soils, up to sort of 7% pristine organic matter. And then farming-wise, they've also been, they're also very, very young. I mean, European settlers only arrived here in the 1870s. Then there was only cattle and sheep farming till 1950. And then probably intensive agriculture only started after Norman Bullock's Green Revolution in the 70s. And, and that started with conventional plowing, disking, whatever, but only for about 25 years. So there's only been real uh, cultivation of these soils for 25 years, and then we were lucky enough to start no-till. So the soils are very new, very protected, and hence they are um, 
you know, it's it's our role, I think, to protect them. I mean, any farmer, all they've got is their piece of land, and whether they inherited it or were lucky enough to buy it uh, or lucky enough to inherit it, and and the ambition is to inherit it off to the next generation or whoever comes next in as good a state as possible. And we are lucky enough to have started with very, very good soils, I think. But but on the other hand, then it's our duty to protect them, um, you know, uh, just for ourselves, for humanity, call it what you will. I mean, these are soils that are can be very intensely farmed and would allow more marginal area hens to be left in conservation because we can produce a lot of yield, uh, but we must protect them. We must um, prevent them from being eroded here. It's, it's, a, it's a very windy area. If we do a lot of tillage, uh, the soils fly away. And however much I just said that we can maybe think about replacing chemicals and chemicals won't be an issue some years down the road. I don't think anybody is working on creating soil. Um, we must protect our soils. And, and that sure, was what in, in all of that, and you know, amongst your neighbours, are you fairly unique? You, you know, you just said so that it's, it's since the 60s, 70s, you know, all of this cultivation happened. But yet, you saw the light, if you like, in, in the, you know, way back in the 1990s. That's that's a long time before a lot of other people. So, what were that penny drop moment for you? And and you know, so are you uh, is that common ground where you are, or, or is everybody's in no tilling? Well, that was, that's the funny thing about no-till in Argentina. No-till in Argentina started in the early 90s, and by 19 and by, by the late 90s, 95% of the farming was done in no-till. It's one of these very few corners of the world that a particular farming system changed completely over a very short period of time, and everyone's done it. I mean, it, it happens to be that our land is suited for no-till. I mean, I'm not trying to say that everybody in the world should be farming no-till, but in this area, it works very well. And I think it's, you know, the difference between having no, non-till soil and tilling it every year is colossal. I mean, it's very difficult to transmit over a Zoom call, but, but actually grabbing hold of land that's not been tilled, that's full of earthworms, that's full of galleries, that permeates the water and stores it, and soil that you're bashing around every year just to create an artificial seedbed, that's colossal. Um, and these soils, thank you for it. I mean, these soils behave an awful lot better in no-till than if they're tilled. Um, would, would you say, you know, so you, you sing the praises there of the soil, but do you think and it's really that different between where you are and here in the UK and what can, what can the UK farmers learn from, from you? Um, I think they probably are different. I mean, I, I, I don't know that much about European, about uh, British soils. I spent schooling in Scotland, which was different. I mean, um, I spent a lot of time on farms in Fife and the like. Uh, but I just happened to have done last year, a uh, the last month, a trip to Romania, which has very heavy clay soils. I wouldn't dare suggest to them what they should do with it, how they, how they should farm their soils. But in a little corner of their farm, they had a little trial of four years no-till. And to my mind, that's the best soil they had. So, but, but far from suggesting that Britain should go into no-till, I mean, they've got a different climate, they've got different soils, they've got different challenges, they've got different scale. Uh, you know, to change machinery around when you've got a small scale is, is a colossal capital in, in, uh, investment for, for just changing a system. We have the advantage that we get a lot of acres out of our machinery uh, hence, changing it, we dilute that cost uh, over a lot of acres very quickly. So, um, 
but on the other hand, I was leading, reading a little or listening to a little uh, YouTube um, video by David Exwood from the Sussex yeah. Wheel just this week. And he, he was transmitting the same things I do. All I've got is my soil. I must protect my soil with maybe different parameters and different uh, me measuring different things. But he also showed an earthworm. Uh, so I think we are all after the same thing, uh, getting our soils to be as productive as possible whilst uh, protecting them as much as possible. Um, you know, nobody, nobody's going to make our farm again. If we lose it, if we, whatever goes down the river off your field or whatever goes mm. flying into the Atlantic off my field, doesn't come back. Yeah. No one's going to make it again. Um, yeah, I, I actually know, I actually know David, he's, he's not too far away from where I'm in Sussex, uh, him and Sarah, right. so yeah. Um, so what would you say is the initial first step? So if people are, are thinking, right, this, you know, David and Sean, they, they sound like they're talking a bit of sense. What would you say is the first sort of steps and, and you know, this the first bits of thinking around some soil preservation techniques and what people can, can start with? Well, I mean, the first thing I, 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 well, I think is to work out what your challenges are, work out what your dangers are. I mean, I know mine is wind erosion. So if I can leave trash on top of the soil and hence avoid the raindrop causing damage and then the wind blowing it away, that's my aim. Uh, in other places, it'll be different things. But soil protection, I think, is the main thing and how to... Well, and then you've got to work out in each area, each field, how, do, how does your soil uh, work with regards to productivity and how, and, and how much, I mean, we, luckily enough, compared to Europe, have a slightly higher summer temperatures, maybe, uh, which allow us longer growing season, and hence, because no-till will delay, your, will shorten your growing season. Your soils will become cooler, and hence, so if your challenge is that your growing season is already too short, then no-till is going to be a challenge because you're putting yourself in, in trouble. If, however, you... But, 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 but we, 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 every farmer in their own field or in their own farm will find a way around it. We'll find what works for them, be it a cover crop, be it, uh, be it just leaving the trash on the, on the, on the soil instead of, instead of burying it. Um, it's a question of just experimenting and also what challenges you. I mean, uh, you go to... And other parts of the world where, where, where maybe, you know, again, back to Romania, um, they, they are having to undo 80 years of mismanagement by the Soviet system. Um, at that time, nobody bothered about anything. So again, uh, what's the, main, the first thing you do compared to something like Romania? You've got to have title. You've got to own your farm. You've got to, at least you've got to have long-term use of your farm to be bothered to want to protect it. That's just the way, you, you know, the, the way we are. So, um, but yeah, it's a concern, I think, as to how you, how you want to make, keep your soil sustainable. Um, sure, Sean, um, I was very privileged to have gone to the Oxford Farming Conference in January of this year, and they had, oh, Princess Anne, what's Princess Anne now, everyone? Uh, Princess Royal? Um, and uh, they, they did a whole session in the morning about uh, regen um, ag and um, and uh, the, uh, the 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 royal uh, was was there for the bulk of it, and she st uh, stood up to say her bit just before uh, the the lunch. And she said, "This has been a fascinating conversation, but one, one thing that no one has mentioned in this whole conversation about regen ag, ag 
is profitability. I presume you're all here to do good, but also to make a, make a profit. So I'd be interested in the next sessions. I don't believe it's a dirty word um, to know whether regenerative, regenerative agriculture is actually making you money. And I, I see this with some, some of um, the, the work that we do with um, with funds, because there's a lot of excitement globally with funds running into sustainability and, and regen ag. And when I speak to them, they, they sound very philanthropic. And I say, but is your business model to make money? Oh, yes, it is. So direct question, Sean. Um, do, do you enjoy what you're doing? Oh, it's a, it's a very direct question. And does it make money? Does, does the system that you operate work financially for your for your farms? Yes, luckily, luckily it does. Uh, and you're quite right. I mean, all these these um, these systems that we try to put in place, the, the the ultimate driver is that it makes more money than tillage. Then my no my no till makes more money than than tillage. I mean, Boom. on these soils and in these conditions. But but equally, I mean, you get you 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 mentioned that regenerative um, um, question. I have, for example, I also manage farms for other investors, and one of one of the owners is really pushing me towards, um, without saying so, they're really pushing me towards organic, maybe. They want to use no more chemicals. Now, of course, at the moment, if you produce food and you say you've used no chemicals, it's very sexy. You put it out there on the supermarket and it probably sells very well. Now, how do you transmit, or my challenge is, how do I transmit that actual, that no use of chemicals, which would, move, which would mean going back to tillage, is worse for my soil. I lose organic matter. I lose soil. Wow. Or, or, so the converse is, I use a little bit of chemicals, but I conserve my soil better. How do you put that on a sticker? I conserve yeah. more organic particulate carbon in my soil. So, yeah. so there's, there's a, bunch of, a bunch of debates have to be really taken through to the final conclusion yeah. that, if, that, that a single aim, like, for example, say, use no more chemicals, uh, can lead to a bunch of unwanted consequences. Uh, yeah. And we've got to be very careful because the consumer doesn't necessarily know everything that, that, that we do when we produce our food. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm prepared to use a bit of chemicals. Neither are we using yeah. colossal amounts of chemicals. I mean, we are in an area where luckily our, our, our insect pressure and our fungus pressure isn't that high. And we can be pretty moderate on our use of chemicals. I mean, I, I produce seed corn here, and I maybe I do six passes on my seed corn field prior to harvest total between herbicides, insecticides, yeah. and fungicides. The yeah. equivalent farmer in Brazil doing the same, producing the same product, does twenty-six passes. Wow! Good Wow! So because not because he's a uh, unsavory fellow or anything like that, it's because his pressure of because of his climate is colossally higher. Yeah. So again, we must look at each farm on its own merit and each area on its own merit. And in a way, if the consumer were to be, I mean, it's, it's hard to get him away from just his only aim being chemicals are bad, uh, rather than, you know, the overall farming system needs to be looked at and some regen, some cover crops, a whole bunch of yeah, things. But you, you're, you're right. The driver has to be: we have to make money. We get no subsidy here. In fact, we get the opposite of no subsidy. We get tax. unusual only tax. We get taxes that are particular to the agricultural sector because it's so efficient and it's yeah. the only part of the economy that sort of works. So yeah. we are the banker of the government. So, yeah. so, but yes, we have to be profitable, and, we, and luckily enough, we are. But 
the reasons that we are profitable are maybe different ones than why the UK farmer may be profitable. We've got large scale, we've got yeah. a bigger climate, we've got cheap labor, um, you know, or cheaper labor. Than, so again, comparing one on the other, you have to be careful what you compare and how you compare it. Yeah, and and Sean, just on, on that comparing front, be fascinated to, to hear your 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 retort to this. When you went down this 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 route X number of years ago, what was there um, an industry that was born overnight to assist you, whether that be machinery companies um, or or consultancy companies? Because in the UK, there's this big, huge boom uh, of um, companies, whether it be data companies, whether it be machinery companies, whether it be consultancy companies, all trying to help. Um, but but um, we we saw the same thing when AD plants went live. We saw the same thing when solar solar uh, got got very excited, and the farmers um, seem be interested to see what Isaac think thinks. Um, got get get very confused as to who they should go to for for advice uh, because they don't know whether the advice that's been sold or the or the or the technology that's been sold is is going to be fit for purpose for them. And Isaac, do you think do you think that's a pertinent question to ask of Sean? Uh, definitely. So I, I do think, you know, so it's, it's sometimes a job for farmers to to sort the wheat, wheat from the chaff, uh, so to speak. But um, I think so there are some amazing initiatives, you know, something like Groundswell, where, where farmers learn from each other and, and things like that. And I think, you know, that's that's a big part of, of you know, what we promote as well is that farmer to farmer learning. So, yes, and it'll be interesting to hear what, what yeah. Sean say about that. And we've got a question that's just come in. I'll ask in a second. Okay, so, so, so Sean, just to, to try and encapsulate my question a little bit further. When you yeah. started down, down this route, were you inundated with um, uh, advice, but you found it difficult to see which direction to go? Yeah, it, it was very particular. And I wouldn't say that if we suddenly started another system, the whole thing would happen in the same way again. But in the mid early mid-90s, through uh, a bunch of farmers that were disappointed with erosion and other aspects of their conventional tillage. So their desire to innovate, particularly, I don't know if we can use the word, but Monsanto and glyphosate, wanting to sell glyphosate and discovering that they could set up this, if they could convince enough farmers to change their system, suddenly their sales of glyphosate would explode, which they did. Um, these two, three things came together, and there were machinery companies, local, particularly local machinery companies, adapted very quickly. And in five years, we had very good planters from having no planters at all previously. Wow. Okay. So it, it, it all sort of gelled together on a one-off. I mean, that we, you know, for, for 30 million hectares to be able to change from bow and disc to no-till in five, six years is extraordinary. I don't think it can be repeated many other places in the world, uh, even here again, sort of thing. And, and we do have, we do have, as you mentioned, we have private, a uh, couple of, of organizations. Uh, one's called CREA, which is already 70, 60 years old, and it's where groups of farmers talk together. And the idea is that you have a monthly meeting on each member's farm, and they're sort of groups of about 10 or 12. And the idea is that if 10 people go to a meeting, each with one idea, we leave with 10 ideas. So you know, it's really based on based on Love sharing. Uh, it's really based on sharing, sharing, and because you know farming is a great industry in that I'm happy to share. I'm not affected yeah. whether my neighbour does well or badly. I'm not an industrialist that I've got to sell the stuff I I make whilst the farm whilst the factory next door doesn't sell it. Like I, I don't have to fight for market share. I mean I'm I'm privileged. Again, a lot of farmers don't realise what a privileged industry we are in. That we can increase production and have a guaranteed buyer. 
You know, I can increase my production 30% and I know I'll sell it. I may not like the price, but I know I'll sell it. It's not, you know, tell that to an industrialist and they they cut your hand off for yeah. that, for have that, to have that privilege. Yeah. Um, so, so it is an industry that we can share. Uh, and then at parallel in the 90s, another organization called basically Argentine No-Till Farmers created and became very strong. And uh, again, through a lot of sharing, a lot of, um, and I say, uh, we, we, we changed the way Argentina farms in seven, eight years. Yeah. Um, great. I, I think it, just before we come on to Isaac's question, I, I think that's that's great that, and it's not rocket science, but that thought of having a number of farmers coming along, everyone's got an idea, one idea, and everyone comes out with um, with, with, with 10 ideas is, is such such a good thing and such great um, uh, collaboration there. Um, occasionally what I see in the UK, especially with um, uh, go, go for something specific, like carbon capture. So there's a number of data systems out there and the farmers i'm meeting uh they're, they're confused and because they're confused they're just stepping back from it and um, they, they they don't they don't want to get involved they just want to see and and that might be the right thing or or um but it, it could also adversely be affecting their business if they're not investigating it but there's just so much information out there that they're, they're getting a bit confused but coming back to your point sean if they all met in a, a room a pub or, or whatever um social uh networking it will be to discuss that everyone's sort of got the same problems in in farming haven't they um but yeah. you only need one that's come up with a solution to be able to to broadcast broadcast it out no it does show the the power of that that knowledge sharing you know with arable business group or dairy discussion groups or the monitor farms or strategic strategic farms that we do you know you quite often see how powerful that is and and also the fact that you know, you as a group of farmers or as a, an industry that decided this is the way we're going down and the, the you know, some uh, auxiliary industries adapted to that rather than the other way around, which which is really interesting and, and powerful. Uh, the question we've had in uh, were around some regen ag, regenerative agriculture. It's, you know, very much the buzzword here at the moment, Sean. But so the, the question from somebody here were, um, you know, how does that, is is that something that that is labelled as such? You know, so do you get uh, is it is it on the horizon or not really? It's it's very very just starting to be talked about. Uh, our challenges are different to, to Europeans. I say, remember, we we have to we get no subsidy. We we but on the other hand, we have freedom to farm. We can do what we like on our farms. So so you know, okay. So no one pays us to do as we are told. So, but we can do what we like. So, so maybe that those things slightly offset each other. Maybe um, I wouldn't say we're going as far as regen yet, but we're going. There, there's a little bit. I mean, I've got a, a farmer friend who who is going down that line. He's finding challenges and successes at the same time. But it, it, he's opening he's opening the ground for for the rest of us to follow a little time later. But we are doing cover crops, and the challenge the challenge. Maybe for us, because these we've got these pristine, very high organic matter soils, is that the minute we start we started producing off those soils, organic matter could do nothing but but decline. I mean, essentially, the organic matter mineralizes in the soil, it produces the nutrients, and we harvest them and take them away. Uh, and we are at the part of the curve where organic matter can do nothing but drop. Other parts of the world, maybe Europe, have got to the parts of the of the declining organic matter curve where it can't drop anymore. It's got to its minimum. And hence, maybe you can talk about rising or raising organic matter content in those soils with some success in the short term. 
we are still, however much we try and do regenerative, however much we have a positive carbon balance in our rotation, we are still going to drop our organic matter because you need more than carbon just to create organic matter. You need nitrogen, you need sulfur, you need all the other things. And our balance, maybe because of the economies of, of our farming, is still nitrogen deficient. We still don't put enough nitrogen in our soils compared to the amount of nitrogen we take away in our harvest. And that nitrogen is provided by the soil, it's provided by the mineralization of the organic matter. So, so sure, we've got to do all we can, but we are, not going to, we are going to find it very difficult to create organic matter here. We may slow the decline, we may be, but we are at that part of the curve. We are still using, using the natural organic matter that, that millions of years provided. So, so we are at a different part of the you know, we're at a different stage of, of the road of how we're getting, uh, of how of, the, of our history of, of farming, as it were. Understood. And, and Sean, um, there's, uh, I, I, I think I say this at every, every broadcast that we, I always look at uh, the likes of Holland um, and the, the, the Dutch diamond, as they, they call it, that they've got this virtuous uh, diamond, or, or call it a circle, that they have government, they have industry, and they have education, and the three work hand in hand, glove in glove, um, to provide um, uh, input, positive input for the horticultural sector to take the horticulture to sector to the next stage. Um, and we don't sort of have that in, in the UK without delving into, into, into politics too much. We, we've got a, uh, an election coming up, so um, everything perhaps is slowing down on, on, the, on the agricultural side. So th there's always um, a, a feeling sometimes that perhaps our UK government could do more, like in, uh, like in Holland. Politically, What's it like for for, for yourself in um, in Argentina? Did you get support, or are you or, or you and your your farming colleagues are, are you are you um, rowing your own boat? We very much row our own boat. Uh, we had an election uh, last two days ago, last Sunday, which changed changed the political party in power, which we are welcoming. We 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 hope that this new, although pretty unknown, character that's going to be presiding us for the next while. Uh, is going to be more in our favor. We have a history over the last, particularly the last 20 years, of having a completely antagonistic government. Um, uh, I mean, illogically, because we are the driving force, economic driving force of the country, we are complete loggerheads with with the government. But that's because it's a different, it's a socio-economically difficult country. I mean, there are 40% of the population is deemed poor, below the poverty line. Um, the, there's a large quantity of people centered around the province of Buenos Aires, the city of Buenos Aires, living in, yeah. I won't say slums, but living in an area that's that that that, that needs social support, and that yeah. support basically comes from uh, tax, extra taxes on the farming sector. So now we are in loggerheads with the government. Um, we have, despite the fact that we are an exporting country, we produce. Food for nine times our population. I mean, our population wow. is 45 million. We produce food for 400 million. We are structurally exporters, yet the government export, uh, taxes exports and quite often restricts their exports. Their driver being they need cheap food. Um, so to provide cheap food, they must always have a surplus. Yep. So okay. hence, for example, a wheat miller will never really be forced to compete with the exporter. The exporter will be allowed to export some, and then once they know roughly that there's enough and a little bit more for the millers, they'll prohibit exports for the rest of the season. So we are in a very 
unsatisfactory condition for 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 that. But but it's extraordinary that despite all that, we still I you know when I travel parts of the world, I still make more money than a bunch of other farmers despite wow. all these. Okay. And that's due to the pampas. That's due to the soils we sit on, which is back okay. to the start of this conversation. We must protect our soil because it's yeah. all we have, and it's yeah. the drive of our profitability. Yeah, um, uh, sure. I just just uh, um, Isaac. We we always have uh, jeopardy on these uh, broadcasts. We just lo lost Isaac for for thirty seconds as he had a a power cut. And um, Isaac just talking to um to, to Sean about um uh, what government support. Um, he gets and he doesn't. Uh, so it's interesting just to, to sort of compare it with what, what with what we're seeing in the, in the in the UK. And just segueing that, Sean, um, Labour. So we always have this 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 issue and have done pre and po post um, post the pandemic and, and finding quality labour within the, the agricultural sectors. And we've done a myriad of broadcasts on that. How do you find the labour aspect for 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 your farms and to not just um, uh, those those uh, great teams doing the day-to-day -day job, but also a mid-management and senior leadership. How, how do you find that aspect of running your business, please? Well, I mean, labour is, is labour has or farming has become an issue. I think I think worldwide. <clears throat> I mean, we are producing. You know, we are, we are providing our operators with forever more modern machinery, better applications. You know, tractors are GPS guided. The, um, Machinery has got sensors, planters have got sensors every which way. But as an example, I had a guy on a tractor last week who made a mistake, not because he was looking at his phone as he traveled, as he was planting, because he doesn't have to do anything else. So, so sometimes the all this extra technology that we're providing has has got this little, you know, how to keep the guy also. I mean, he's work, I mean, to be fair, he's planting 10, 12 hours a day, so he needs, you know. So the challenge is maybe we sell them, we rest them, we put somebody else there for a while. But, uh, you know, but they've got this very big machinery, this colossally large amount of money that's in the hands of maybe sometimes not that skilled an operator. But the younger folk, luckily, I mean, they're far better than I am at it because they adapt to this technology uh, really quickly. They can use it. Um, so, so that much is good. Um, the... Well, my view on, on, on how, to, how I farm my business or I manage my business, which compared to European farmers is, is quite large, is <clears throat> that I make it simple. I try and make it as simple as possible. But on the other hand, you know, I've got lots of crops. I do irrigating circles and square fields. So you've got wedges and corners and stuff. And, and But, you know, but if I compare, we've been irrigating with center pivots for over 50 years. Uh, the ones that are nowadays, you have them, you have them on the phone. You switch them backwards and forwards and tell them to water more or less from your phone, from whichever corner of the world you're in. So, so um, it does. Um, technology has changed the way we farm an awful, awful lot. Um, but I think we also need to be careful which parts of technology we adapt, we adopt. I don't think I want everything, everything to be remote and everything to be. I mean, I'm when I'm provide you know sometimes I'm planting for for seed corn production with a with a with a company that we contract with and they are 500 kilometers away with a with a computer telling me what's happening in my field I say I know what's happening in my field because I walk it and I know and you maybe yeah. maybe you're wrong and I'm right uh, you know so so there's we've got to be careful what how much of this technology we we adopt and and, and in what form we adopt it um, but uh, but yeah Farm workers are a challenge, but here they're more of a challenge because I guess 
I guess we should pay them more, um, but but the market well, pays what we yeah. pay. Um, you know that would turn them. I mean, there is space for for them for, for us to pay them more. They they are. Productivity, because the scale of the machinery they use and the hours they can they can do, is way is way high. I mean, I've got a combine that combines four thousand five hundred hectares a year because wow. literally I'm combining something for ten months. I mean, I'm starting combining December or maybe even late November, right, December, say, with peas or barley. Uh, January will be wheat. January will be white clover. End of February will be sunflower. March will be sunflower, April will be soya beans, and then May, June, July, August, September will be corn. So yeah. he's got yeah. he's got a month off in October, November to fix his machine. So <laughs> so uh, productiv our productivity on, on which you know um, what what, what I've, time's gone by. I've analysed the main differences in profitability in in our farming and and European farming, and the real standout feature is the colossals less amount of money we have invested in, in machinery. Yeah. I mean, I've gone into a Danish farmer's shed who farms 10% the area that I do, and he's got more machinery than I have. Yeah. Bigger tractors, yeah. Uh, you know, more of them, because their time is way restricted in when they've got to do their stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I can plant my wheat crop over two months. Maybe the, the Danes got to plant it over three days uh, because yeah. his yeah. weather window is such. So we, we, you know, we've got advantages. We've got colossal government disadvantages, but our climate, our weather, our scale, uh, climate and our scale, and the quality of our land um, make up for some of it. On the other hand, you know, sometimes uh, another thing I've been asked about, you know, compare British and and and, and our farming. I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about British farmers, but it strikes me that one of their big advantages is that within 150 miles of your farm gate, you've got 40 million high, high, um, you know, uh, good um, high purchase consumers. I mean, consumers that can high spending consumers compared to, you know, we've got to go 8,000 miles to sell our stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know. Yeah. And, and, and Sean, just had a question in, um, from Henry from Kent. Database systems. Does Sean run a farm data management um, system so that he knows what, what is happening with his uh, with his business, not only cropping wise, but accountancy wise and, and labor wise? So, there's, again, there's a myriad of, of, of systems in, in the UK. So, so do you run a system or, or are you, are you um, uh, running anything off, off the back of a ring binder? How, how do you work on that side, please? I'm sort of halfway. Uh, I do a sort <laughs> of man management accounts. But prop, you know, I'll do 2,000 acres of wheat and I'll have a management account for my 2,000 acres of wheat. I won't do it field by field. Um, uh, equally, you know, I've got a seven, say, seven different business uh, things that I do and I, and I have management accounts on each seven, but not on each field. Right. Uh, okay. I have a management account on my irrigating system as a, as a business model and one for the rest of my machinery, one for my my silo plant and one for my trucks and stuff like yeah. that, but I won't go field by field. Um, yeah, okay. That's just, I mean, some people go field by field here, but, but okay. I'll go just crop by crop. Okay, next question in, um, in your farming group, is there much conversation about, drum roll, AI? So AI is going to revolutionize farming, agriculture. What, what's, yeah, what's the well, view from, from South my, America? That, that, group, that group met at my farm, uh, three months ago, and I put it out there as a, as, as something that's going to happen. I, I was lucky enough in, in in August to visit the headquarters of 
a company in Illinois called Precision Planting, um, which oh, yes. um, produces a bunch of stuff to effectively plant better. And I was speaking to one of their computer nerds, or one of their guys who actually does the software for all this stuff. And he says, you don't know what my life, my working life has changed in the last eight months since ChatGPT came on. And he says, hey, you don't know what your life is going to change over the next five years. Um, so yeah, I think it's a colossally powerful tool that maybe not I, but the next generation will, will find the rate of change. I mean, we've all found, I think, through our working life, that the rate of change has gone, done nothing but increase. Um, yeah. And it's just going to get faster. I mean, things are going to change colossally fast. I mean, we're going to be doing stuff in five years' time, I think, that we don't imagine today. Um, yeah. Or doing it in a way that we don't imagine today. Yep. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say this. Um, I recently covered a, a, a big uh, produce conference in, in America and they had a, a keynote speaker. Like, I'll, I'll tell you what, I won't, I won't nominate him, but you know who he is. He was a, a co-founder of, um, I don't know, um, something like this. Um, so the major speaker and uh, the, the compare uh, behind the scenes uh, asked him, um, oh, my wife wants to get the new uh, like that, but 14. Uh, what would your advice be, Mr. Speaker? Mr. Speaker said, oh, no, don't. It's a waste of money because you can't do any more with uh, with that sort of device. It's, it's reached its limit. Um, and he was quite shocked by that. But I suppose it's it's th this will get replaced, won't it? Um, yeah, and I suppose that's the thing that your, your farming group and Isaac and the HDB and all of us are going to be aware of. It's it's what's it's what's next. It's like um, the, the Farmers Weekly in two, the year 2000, they uh, had a competition as to uh, the invention that changed UK agriculture the most in the last hundred years. And what was it? It wasn't the combine harvester. It was the mobile phone. So I suppose yeah. that's a big fascinating to see. Isaac, over to you. I, I, Isaac, stop. So we got, we got a problem with your, your sound, Isaac. It's all, yeah. it's got, it's all, got all, all uh, Dalek-y. Um, so, so Sean, uh, carbon, carbon capture. Um, so, so that again, we we sort of uh, briefly went over it um, um, earlier. There's so much talk about it within uh, within UK agriculture. I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a similar question to to that of AI. It, is carbon capture something that that you your your um your your, your farming colleagues um, your in industry groups are are talking about? Are you watching us um, over in um, uh, the UK and Europe to see what we're doing with carbon capture, or are you deep 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 into the nestles in this as well? No, we are, to be honest, we are watching you. Um, what's particular about the Pampas, which a lot of parts of the world don't necessarily realize, is that the Pampas have historically been, always were, uh, tree-free. There are no natural trees in the Pampas. They never were. So, you know, we, we're not having to deal with the negative effects of deforestation because there never was any deforestation here. The natural, the natural uh, okay. plant thing here were grasses. There was just pampas grasses and grasses all over the country. So it was that that's that's what that's what created our carbon. Years and years and years of grass. Okay. Uh, so we're not having to deal with, hey guys, replace the trees, because they never were any trees. Right. Um, on the other hand, the seven percent organic pristine organic matter in our soils, we need to protect. Uh, we've lost already. We're down to five, probably, and in some places even worse. But, but as I say, carbon is not just a question of uh, or organic matter. Carbon is not just created by adding carbon to our rotation. That would be very easy. I'd go buy a, I'd go and buy a truck full of coal and throw it on my field and solve my my organic matter carbon. But that doesn't work like that. We need to organically try and capture and transform 
soil carbon, I mean, residue carbon into soil carbon. And that's quite a complex energy cost, energy and hence money uh, cost uh, equation. We have to put in more nitrogen, we have to buy it, or we have to not harvest it. So, so who's going to fund that? You know, oh. that's always our question is who you do want us. And I don't see enough people coming to say, I'll pay you for increasing your organic matter content in the soil from five to 5.1, because that doesn't sell. Yeah. Which consumer really knows about organic matter oh. carbon uh, or soil carbon and is prepared to pay someone who says he's captured a little bit of carbon in his soil? Maybe with global warming and with CO2 emissions and all that, maybe there's, there's something there. But I, I, don't, I don't see it just by saying, I projected my soil better. Uh, the guy who says he used no chemicals is going to beat me every time. Uh, so have you got any any bit of markets arising there? Are there people talking about some will buy your carbon or or some, it's just not a, a thing just yet? There's a little bit, but just as an anecdote, for example, I, I've got a trial on one of my fields from one of the big European chemical companies, which is basically here, here's a field, let's split it into you do your normal stuff on one half and we'll do um, as much as we can to increase carbon in the soil on our side. Because they are one of these companies that have said we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030 and they want to tick the box that as well as, as, well as having all their vehicles being electric vehicles that they're actually helping the farmer capture carbon. To start with, they found it very difficult to do anything different to what I'm doing on my half, to, on, on their half to say they farm more carbon friendly. But, but that same company I'm doing, so what, what they suggest on, the, on their side is more cover crops, more intensive, more, more farming for the soil, as it were. But with the same company, I produce seed corn. And I've got a manager or a, an employee of that company that I deal with for, but obviously he's concerned with producing as much seed corn off the hectare that we're doing the seed corn on. So when I tell him, hey, your same company from the other corner of my farm wants to do this, this, and this. Shall we do it in your seed corn field? Oh, heavens no, that might reduce my yield. So even the same companies have, within the, the companies, they haven't really come to terms with what they really want and what they're prepared to pay for. Because the minute you're talking money, then carbon goes out the window because they don't know who's prepared really to say, uh, we're going to put a pile of money into, and a pile of money, I mean, reduce my yield or yeah. increase my fertilizer or do something just to say I've been a little more carbon friendly. I haven't yeah. found the guy yet who's, who's, who's going to do it. Yeah. I'm um, sure specific question, um, rainfall um, um, and uh, water availability. What is it like with you? We, we have something, our average rainfall is probably about uh, 800 odd millimeters, 900 millimeters a year. So 40 inches, I think it is thereabouts or a little under 40 inches, 38 inches. Um, we are sitting on a uh, very abundant aquifer. The aquifer essentially overflows underground into the sea. So the aquifer wow. is volume sustainable. It's unfortunately, quality-wise, it's not that clever. It's, it's, um, yeah. it's sodium bicarbonate unfriendly, as it were. It's got too much sodium in it. So we have to be careful how much we water. We can only water probably... 200 millimeters every three years. So my irrigator, irrigating machines are all mobile. I feel I move them from field to field. So yeah. I will only tend to water corn, which comes once every three years in the rotation. So roughly 
I water every three years, maybe now every two and a bit, but because uh, we're intensifying the amount of corn we produce on the farm. Okay. But uh, and, yeah, our main our main reason not to water forever everything is that our quality of our water isn't that clever. Okay, and and do you have to pay an extraction license? Yeah, <laughs> technically yes. Um, careful, I do. careful. <laughs> I I do because uh, I'm in the committee of of the of the watering association, but an awful lot of people don't, and there's no and there's no policing of it really. All right, I'll 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 move that um, conversation on before we get thrown into too much. I'm going to get sued. I'm going to get sued by Apple. So let's carry on. <laughs> right. Well, so uh, Max, you would know, so uh, you know, we won't end the conversation without talking about leadership and management. You know, so that's my pet topic. Uh, Sean, you obviously run a, a big operation there, and you know, so with various people and various different levels of that. Just explain a little bit about that and how the how you work, this the setup, but also what is your leadership style and your management style, you know, and how much autonomy do you give to people or how much do you need to keep in hand? Right. One of one of the main things about about land holding in, in Argentina is that it didn't start like it did in the US, where each immigrant was gone and given a, a, a section or whatever they call it, a certain piece of land, and they were told, go go farm it, go settle, go make your homestead, and, and that is your piece of land. Here, um, land essentially got given out in large chunks to the first people who were here, people who maybe funded the army to go and clear out parts of the country or whatever. So, I mean, there was a very poor distribution of land initially. And then the other aspect is that Inheritance law here is, is, is Napoleonic. Each child gets an equal share. So um, particularly in large families, land holdings subdivided very quickly. So now you've got a large, a large section of a large proportion of farmland which is gone below economic uh, scale. So you've got so the outcome of that is that 70% of the land is tenanted. Uh, and very, very few farmers actually live on the land. The bulk of farm owners live in the cities and rent the land out. And even people who manage it will still live in the city and have a manager or an employee and come to the... So, I mean, we live on our land. My wife, Jennifer, and I and our kids, we lived on our land. And my family have always... The, my grandfather and my father have always lived on the land, but we're very, very, very much the exception. Uh, so that, that has to be understood in, in when you're trying to compare it from European scenarios, because it's very, very different. Um, you know, so there isn't a, a real rural fabric. There isn't a real community. There isn't a fabric of a rural community because there's nobody here. Remember as a, an anecdote once, uh, an Australian um, guy called Tony Fisher, a, a wheat physiologist from Australia came and we were looking at a trial in a September evening when already sunlight had pretty much gone. And we were looking at the, at the trial with a, with a torch even and and he got up and said, "Hey, there's something wrong here. What's wrong? There no there are no lights. Nobody lives here. And it's true, nobody lives here. Uh, so that that is a, an aspect of of Argentine farming that has to be understood if you're trying to compare it from Europe. So the fact that I do live on my farm gives me a lot of competitive advantages. I mean, I, I I'm I'm on the farm shop. I I I I see what's going on and I and I act accordingly. So maybe I'm ahead of the game in a lot of my competitors, because I'm here, as it were. Um, 
And with, a, with regards to management style, I try and keep it very simple. Um, you know, um, uh, try and make quick decisions. Uh, how, how, many people, how many people work in, uh, in your business? Well, it's actually work on the farming business. So, so I manage, I, I do close on 4,000 hectares and I have one planter, a guy who plants. He plants winter, winter crops in the winter, like wheat, barley, clover, and peas. And then he plants sunflower and corn and soya beans over three months in the spring. And he spends the rest of the time repairing and whatever. I've got one crop sprayer who sprays on a 40 meter boom, sprays 35,000 hectares a year uh, with multiple applications on various fields. And then I've got a guy who drives a combine and his helper. And I've got a right-hand man who runs my silo plant. And I've got three truck drivers, lorry drivers to haul grain. And the rest of the people work sort of more on the homestead and uh, and whatever. So it's colossally few for the scale that for the amount of acres that we that we use, sort of thing. which is on the one hand one of our advantages, but on the other hand, my total wage bill isn't really very incidental in my business. Um, that's not where my costs are. I mean, my costs are in fertilizers particularly and tax and stuff like that. I mean, my, my wage bill could be, I think probably if I were to be honest, my wage bill should be more generous, um, but, uh, but that's not the drive. That, that doesn't do or undo my, my, the, the bottom line. Yeah. And Sean, question um, uh, from, from myself. With the, I, I covered a, a, recently I covered a, a UK agriculture university and they, the, the lecturers there said that they, 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 they love the students a bit, but one bits, but one thing that they have found is that they don't have much international ambition. Um, I, I, you, you look at uh, Isaac's background and, and what he's doing with Nuffield. And I was very lucky to have done a, a year on cotton in Australia. And it was, it was the making of me with, with the, uh, would you encourage people, um, students from UK and Europe to come out to Argentina to farm, to, to, to gain an understanding, understanding of the farming systems with yourself? I certainly encourage them to to travel. I mean, I've 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 received um, particularly Scottish students uh, on the farm here, and I've gained an awful awful lot for going elsewhere. I mean, main, the main the main thing I've learned is to come back to the pampas and see how lucky we are to farm on to farm on these soils. Um, on the other hand, that gives us a bunch of responsibilities about these soils. But for sure, I think people should travel just to see to see how other things, other other realities, and 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 then hence be respectful of thinking that just because you're good at what you do in your own place, that you should extrapolate to tell someone how they should do it somewhere else. I mean, yeah, each farm is it's its own environment, and certainly each country is its own environment with regards to how to farm. Um, you know, the, be it just because of the soils, the climate, and the geopolitical situation that they're allowed to farm in or I mean it's completely different to farm under 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 a subsidy and essentially to some extent you're turned into the the gardener of the environment. I mean you're paid to look after the land maybe rather than to say here go and compare that to complete freedom to farm and they're two different worlds. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're, they're really, I mean I'm not saying that the freedom to farm means I can do what I have whatever the hell that I like environmentally or with regards to sustainability is that I can really choose to farm whatever I like, whenever I like, and to do it for the internal market, for the export market, for whatever. Uh, and that, I think, is where maybe the big differences with Europe are, are because there you, you tend to have to, at least 
the little I know about, about um, when I was in, in a student in Scotland. I mean, you 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 tend to have to play the subsidy market or, or see where where you're allowed to farm as a whether the the sum of what you produce plus what you're paid as a subsidy is your income, not just what you produce. Yeah. Uh, Jensen, we're running out of time, but I've got a comment here. Could Sean take his laptop outside um, and give us a drive around so we can have a have a look at the farms? Welcome, is it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, I, I might, Isaac, take, do, do, I might take you up on that, Sean, because I'm uh, over in Argentina next sort of February, March time. So I'll uh, come and take a few pictures. Of oh, brilliant! Them. I'm going to be in South Africa at the end of January, but when I'm back, about the middle of February, or. Sure. We, we might just uh, cross paths. That'll be excellent. I'm not quite satisfied yet with, with the whole leadership thing. So a couple of tips, you know, and maybe just a tip or two on, you know, your leadership style or your management style, you know, because obviously it's, in, it's not many people, but you run a very successful business uh, to wrap up there, please. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, because not only do I farm my, my 4,000 hectares, I manage three farms for European investors. Well, one's a Chilean, but the other two are European investors. And there you just have to rely on the guy on the farm doing what you, you know, when I've started managing a, a, a third party's farm, the first two years have been pretty intense to work out if the guys who are there are doing the right thing. But once you've worked out that they do, then you've got to just let them get on with it. I mean, you direct, you instruct, whatever, but, but the day-to-day -day has got to be done by them. I can't be doing day-to-day -day over 15,000 15, hectares sort of thing, and separated by... 250 kilometers so so you've got to be able to delegate uh, and 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 particularly work out that everyone that you're delegating to is thinking the way you are I mean that's I think what's what's worked for me anyway uh, once you once you've done that then it becomes a pretty simple process I mean, it's, um, you know what's what's they say is farming it's 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 20 percent ideas if that and 80 percent execution uh, and it's probably a lot more than that um, you know, um, they are straightforward crops. I mean, that we do, and uh, and uh, we just got to make sure that they're done on time and the right things, and the right things that have to be done to them are done on a, you know when they when they need to be done and done properly. What a what a certain quote to finish on: uh, twenty percent ideas, eighty percent execution. So, yeah. uh, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, hopefully, next time I see you is uh, on your farm in Argentina. Uh, that'll be be really good. Um, and so, you know, from, from my side, thank you. Uh, if you have any questions, if you're watching and or some, you know, so have a look at what we do at AHDB, have a look at uh, the AgriLeader program and get in contact. Uh, so thank you very much. And Sean, when Isaac comes along, if this is a small short bloke carrying his bags, that's me because I'm coming as well. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac, thank you. Sean, thank you. I, I find we, we could have gone on for, for, for ages and perhaps next time we'll, we'll, we'll try and get some videos from you because we all want to learn from you look, looking at the WhatsApp questions that, 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 have, that have come in. Sean, thank you very much for your for your time today. Really interesting, Isaac. And, and another great one to knock out of the park for talking leaders. I, I, I love that we're, we're learning so much. And just, just to wrap up, I think um, what uh, Sean intimated that you go to a discussion group with one idea, everyone else comes with one idea and you go away with 10, 15, 20 ideas ideas so simple but it's so clever sean thank you thank you thank you great thank you. thanks